Anything I could uh, talk about or have a specific question? Um, the transition from meditation to like getting up and going, and then, or even the transition from meditation concluding to like chanting the closing homages and such like that feels really abrupt to me. And how do you transition and sort of carry what you've gained? And then, because it's suddenly, it's sort of like a, almost like black and white for me, something, right? All right. It really depends what you're doing during the meditation. So if, if you're, if you're finding tranquility by holding attention on an object, you can, you can tranquilize the mind, which is helpful, but then that tranquility is dependent on holding the mind on the object. And when you walk away from that kind of tranquility, then other objects distract you, and all of a sudden your mind is kind of going out and being, um, is being activated, uh, and, and, and the mind doesn't have the same kind of tranquility because it can't, possibly. So that's one thing. It, do, you, do you perceive the, the rewards of meditation or just a contemplative life to be that kind of tranquility which comes from sense deprivation and focus? So if, if that begins to be um, something which is very important, then complexity and a lot of stimulation becomes, um, well, it's coarse, mm-hmm. right? It's coarse, it's not refined. So the other way to look at it is that if your if 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 meditation is moving you to, and generally in life, is moving you to the space of consciousness rather than the objects. So... Uh, you, I can, I can sit here, and I can use the breath to kind of just get things settled. All right, I can do that with my body or with the breath or with a mantra. So I can do that to get settled. But then after a while, for myself, I, I know the mind is settled, and then I just contemplate the the space within which the breath is moving, rather than holding the breath. Now that that space then is not dependent on the object. And it can, it can know the movement of memory, pain, uh, discomfort, sound, kind of coming through that space. And if I make that space the priority, not that I don't use the other, but I make the space the priority rather than the holding of the meditation object, then when I, then I've kind of, what I've done, I've given a momentum to my way of being, where when I enter into the world of objective reality with responsibilities and things to do and all that, my referen- I have a reference point of space as well as the objects. And my reference point is no longer just tranquility, but it's rather the space which is neither tranquil nor non-tranquil. It's, within, within, it's, it's that which, within which tranquility and noise come and go. Now if that's my reference space, then the, the coming and going of objects, of you know, interpersonal 
talk or answering emails or, or, or dealing with um, um, an old body, you know, whatever it is, those are the objects within space. And then those objects are, are, are no longer so um, sticky. And they're no longer, I no longer so get preoccupied them because now my reference is more like space. More like space. So if, uh, if I get uh, annoyed at someone because they have done some, they haven't done something like I've asked them to do and they've done it in a way which I think is sloppy or whatever, and then an annoyance comes up, that's, that's the more coarse part of my life, right? But because the reference is space rather than tranquility, the annoyance doesn't stick. The annoyance goes through because that's the habit to get annoyed when someone does something you don't like, but it doesn't stick. So the, the transition from meditation to uh, normal life is about non-stickiness rather than about refinement, tranquility, uh, and so on. Otherwise you can't live your life, right? You have to kind of live in a cave. And, and um, what you'll find is very sticky in a cave too, no matter what. But, so I would, I would, I would where, I, where I really, what I contemplate a lot is very much the, the end of self-thinking. Because in the end of self-thinking, and, and self is just a thought, the, the whole sense of a person is just a thought. There is intelligence, there is presence, there is consciousness, that's functioning. But the whole sense of, why didn't they do what they should have done? Or, what am I going to do tomorrow? Or, oh yeah, I forgot to do that. All that stuff is the stuff of thought. Nothing wrong with that. But we get so caught up in the belief of self and the belief of personality, we find it very hard to see thought as an object. We are the subject constantly of this becoming and regretting and organizing and all of that. And what we want to do is try to really, in our meditation, train in awareness, which knows the this, this sense of a self coming and going as an object. So let's say if you're sitting here and you're planning uh, a trip to, to um, Newfoundland, you know, and maybe you're just thinking, yeah, well, we better get there by that date. Gonna have to, you know, we have to get enough food. How heavy is the pack going to be? Kind of normal stuff. Nothing wrong with it. But there is a sense of me, time going to Newfoundland and going walking, and 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 maybe you're looking forward to it. Maybe that's really interesting. Or oh, well, we have enough time. You worry, whatever. That whole scenario is 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 a kind of like a drama that comes in your mind. And that's not immoral. That's not bad. It's normal. But that drama defines a sense of Roxana in time. Blah 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 blah. But that's just an object. Now, if you can, if you can, in your meditation, you can see this object's called Roxana coming and going in different ways. When it ceases, you're still intelligent. You're still present. You haven't, you know, you're not catatonic at all. But the whole sense of a person in time stops. It's not there. It depends on thought. And that's what we mean by emptiness or cessation. And if you can start to, to, to if you can start to notice that, what you also notice is that the space of awareness is always there, and it's not dependent on tranquility, the breath, or whatever. So the breath gets you to emptiness, gets you there, and then you bhavana. Then is like training in that, training in that sense of of non-becoming. You know the language I use: non-becoming, non-resistance, non-anticipation, presence receptivity, that's the kind of language I find very helpful. And that is very portable. 
That is very, very portable. And, and as you see, as you get confidence in that, then the transition becomes, you know, it's, the transition is difficult and very, very complex, and, but the transition is really not much at all in normal, like in normal monastic life. So it is, it is a question of what you, you know, what you perceive meditation to be and the object of meditation. Um, so, samatha practice, samatha practice is holding your attention on a wholesome object, a neutral object, and by holding your attention on that in a skillful way, your mind calms. And that's the point of samatha. But beyond that, uh, that concentration practice, what then? Is, 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 my, is the peace of mind always dependent on a, a kind of circumstance where I'm when I hold my mind on something, and then when I have to do something more complex, more busy, does that, does my practice serve the rest of my life? That's very important, isn't it? Because I only sit for, you know, two hours a day, you know, 45 minutes a day, whatever. So the real question is, how does my meditation serve normal life? But also, how, how, how does normal life serve my meditation? And normal life would serve my meditation if I'm living a moral and generous life. You know, just a kind of reasonable life. But then, my meditation would serve normal life if it's inclining to something which is not dependent on experience. So, if my... And what is not dependent on my experience is awareness of change. That's what I've been saying here the last few months. And when I, when I notice something is changing... And I take that perspective and I cultivate it. It's not, it doesn't happen like that. You keep cultivating this, this kind of different way of being. So like, you know, the way I, I like to teach in meditation, I say, perceive this as in awareness. And that's a really difficult perception. We're not usually like, I'm here and I'm meditating and I'm doing this, but perceive this whole sense of a body and time and, 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 and memory and experience. All that is in awareness. Right? Notice, notice the cessation of a, of, a, of a scenario, how it ceases. And in that ceasing, you sense there's emptiness. These are, these are difficult words. But as you start to do that, you, your meditation then becomes more what we mean by insight meditation, rather than just holding the mind. So, uh, get like, probably, the, it's, it's, I know it sounds kind of abstract, but it's actually very practical, very practical. So the one way to do that is, is one of the best ways is sound, uh, uh, space and form. You know, like just, you know, and this is this example we give all the time. You're in this room, and there's forms. There's a sense of a body sitting here. There's a sense of temperature. There's a sense, there's sound. Uh, maybe there's memory. There's color. There's depth perception. Uh, is a sense of outside and inside. All those are things that we're perceiving right now. That's the way the mind's working. But all those perceptions and insights and sounds and feelings and memories, they're all happening in awareness, in space. So there's space and there's form. So the space we don't notice because... But these objects couldn't exist without space. Space doesn't need the objects. And that's the analogy to, to consciousness or to awareness. So how do you do that like here? What do, you, what do you need to do? Well, you need to kind of just stop looking at stuff, stop listening to something particular. You kind of relax your eyes. Like, like how, would you, how would you notice the space in this room? You, 
you wouldn't be focusing on it. Like if I focus on that pattern, I say, oh, there's white, blue, white, blue, white, blue. I'm, I'm focused on the object, right? And that could get me quite calm. You know, I could count all those objects, all those um, polygons. <laughs> Trying to get the word right around there, right? I get very focused. Put my mind to pin it on the on the carpet. But if I see that, like, if I just take my 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 attention away from the carpet, it's still there, and I just notice the space. What do I have to have to relax the mind? I'm just going to relax the mind and feel the room here has sound. Right from my hands. And this is happening in awareness. Your mind begins to be space itself. You begin to see consciousness is space. Or that awareness is conscious space. Language is very difficult here. And, and, and if that's what you want to do when you know that, look, you see, you get caught up with thinking, you're meditating, and you're just planning, and then all of a sudden, uh, I ring the bell, say. And when I ring the bell, you realize I've been thinking. Now in that moment, that space... Because now you see the object of thought as an object. You may not notice it. You may, in the next second, say, I should be trying harder, or my meditation wasn't good. But actually in that moment when you noticed it, you're, you're in the space of awareness. And that's what you're trying. You're trying to relax the mind into awareness, rather than seeking the next object, and the next object, and the next object. So if you're, if you're a meditator and you're using the breath, and then you notice thought, then you quite often just focus on the breath again, which can be helpful, but then you're always dependent on the breath. But if you use the breath, or whatever object of meditation you like to do, and then let go of the breath, and more like open your mind and notice, oh, this is, this is happening in awareness. Allow that perception to work on you. It's not a, it's not a common perception. A not common perception is, I'm sitting here, and you're sitting there, which is not incorrect. But the very sense of me and you now, I have a visual, uh, I have a visual perception, I have a sense of distance, right? All of that is actually in awareness, and that's that's what that's the liberating factor of consciousness. That's where you get liberated. Is that too abstract? No. See, I just started a new technique because I was reading some of Vijayan Sumedho's books where he talks about the sound of silence and that ringing. Yes. And so I've left in the past two or three sittings I've left the breath idea uh-huh. and I've gone to that mm-hmm. but I still find it really alarming like when you get off the cushion and like you go through the hall you're stuffing your cushion away and all that right and it's like it's like it just kind of ends you know like the sound of silence doesn't end so try to carry it through to the cushions yeah yeah it's it's a challenge definitely yeah it seems to end, but uh, that's what—that's the challenge of like increasing the sense of spacious awareness and the sound of silence. When to you're out there. when you're out there, when you're with a chainsaw, when you're cooking, when you're in a complex social situation, and so on. But I think what's important is the the insight that you get on the meditation. If you see that bhavana is the letting go of objects and that abiding in space, then and you're convinced of that. You know, not, not me convincing you, but you see, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Then that's going to be your intention as you're meditating. And if that's your intention, you're meditating, some of that is going to flow through this room. Not much, but you keep making an intention that's going to come up again and again and again. That's how kama works. Kama is intentional action. So, you know, you have some insight around sound of silence. That seems to work. 
right? Mm -hmm. And then try to just make the intention, oh, what am I doing? I'm developing a spacious awareness. Yeah? Because then, you know, like when I'm I'm using the sander now uh, in the workshop, noisy thing, and I'm trying to listen to the sound of silence, or just be with that space, right? And I don't cut my fingers off. <laughs> you know, I'm not spaced out. Not spaced out. So really, you can see how whatever, whatever you're doing in your meditation uh, is going to... If your intentions during your meditation are about something which is true all the time, all the time, then that intention is going to carry through in all activities, if you have that insight. And the insight is that, that sure, we have to come and go in the objective world, but that awareness knows this coming and going, and it is a refuge. And you get better and better at it. But it's subtle. I mean, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not rocket science, but it's also not um, watching Seinfeld. You know, it's, it's, it's very... Um, it's kind of intuitive. It's not so obvious. Like, just to say that this, that, that this situation is in awareness is very hard to actually... Because you can't grasp it as an object. It seems so abstract, but it's not an abstract. You can perceive in that way. Maybe artists are better at that. I'm not sure. Yeah? But it's a good question. Yeah, that, because you want, you want your meditation to be something that's um, fulfilling which is motivating you throughout the day, mm-hmm. rather than just trying to get rid of the day so you can meditate. Mm-hmm. That's the big error, right? That's what I saw with in monastic life. We'd, you know, we'd, we'd resent complexity for the cushion. And that's, you know, the real stuff is on the cushion. So you just kind of get rid of everything else and then you meditate. But that's a very, that's a very dangerous position to take. Obviously, too much complexity just blows your brain out. And most of us need to meditate quite a lot just to get to that sense of spaciousness and emptiness. But once we're there, and we cultivate that deliberately, then that tends to then um, make less of a difference when we get off the cushion. It seeps. Yeah, it seeps in. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, very much. I just have a, a clarification on the terminology, awareness, space, and uh, what was the third Consciousness. Yeah. Consciousness, so they really... I use them interchangeably. Exactly. exactly. Uh, but, you know, like a scholar would say, you can't do that very mm-hmm. dumb. I say, okay. <laughs> but, so like the word consciousness, vijnana in Nepali, has two meanings. The, the most common meaning is eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, body consciousness, tongue consciousness, and mind consciousness. But there's another, another vijnana, which is uh, un, called undifferentiated consciousness. And that is not so much mentioned in the, uh, in the text. So when a, when a Buddhist monk says consciousness, you assume it's one of the five khandhas. But there's this other, other aspect. But, you know, what do you call, what do we call just a sense of being present? You can call it Mickey Mouse if you want. It doesn't really, really matter. But there is a sense of presence. And, and it's not the same as just sound consciousness, nose consciousness. It's something that is aware within that. Huh? 
So space uh, is is analogous. It's an, an analogy, really, for for like. So I like to use the idea of conscious uh, aware space or conscious space. It gets kind of clumsy, but doctrinally, you know, you get you get. Oh, you can't say that because this. So it has to be an intuitive thing, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. You intuitively say, oh yeah, yeah, okay. Like just the idea that this is that perceive this as in awareness is more like an intuitive thing. You get a sense of it. Yeah. Yeah, um, so it's really because I've been working quite a bit with this space and awareness, and you can't, because I started out to to be aware of awareness, so take awareness as an object, but you really... I got stuck there. I'm stuck there a little bit. Because in that, I mean, that gets you there, but then you have to let go of being someone who's trying to be aware. Mm-hmm. As soon as you make an intention, I'm going to be aware of the awareer or whatever, there's a sense of me a doing. So that's the kind of, you get there and then you have to stop the doing. So how do you do that? You, you intuitively, you look at the very sense of pressure that that creates. And realize that's still tension. And the ideas around receptivity, availability, um, just those kinds of ideas become more intuitive. And there's more and more, there's a letting go of desire. So the third noble truth, or the second noble truth, is that the cause of suffering is attachment to desire. Third noble truth is desire has to be abandoned. You begin to really see what that, that model is. You really see what the abandonment of even trying to find awareness, because even that, you know, you get the, any technique you get, you you there is a sense of me doing something to get something, and more and more, that seems coarse. It might not have seemed coarse like 10, 15 years ago, but there's a kind of coarseness in the effort, and more and more you intuit just there's nothing to do, <laughs> but it's very hard. It's very hard to do nothing and stay awake. It's very, very difficult because the, the tendency to be looking for something, to be accomplishing, very, 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 very strong. And that's bhava. Bhava tanha is this, 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 this kind of, we're born with that. You know, we're born this way. Got to do something. So to actually, actually to relax the mind is a big challenge. Just to let, let the mind be at ease and not go, not go off into la-la land and stay very, very present. That's very hard. So when you, you know, I, I think you've got enough experience or even that where uh, just just look at the sense of needing to do something. Mm-hmm. Just just that. You know, it gets more and more subtle. So, non, so that's why my language around these things is very much in the non-phase of things, non-desire, non-becoming, non-resistance, huh? non-anticipation. It's just a way of reflecting back those tendencies. Beatrice. Okay. Um, but you were talking about the habit of the mind to always want to do something. Mm-hmm. So um, I've read that you can investigate, mm-hmm. but then. Then something do. <laughs> you might get caught up in your thought also by investigating. Mm-hmm. But I remember you told us just to leave the question open and then it's going to work. But what with the replacement with wholesome thinking 
or is it the same as affirmation or is it the same as repeating voodoo or so what's right thinking yeah. in a sense yeah right thought well part of I mean right thought comes from right understanding so when you understand something you tend to think in those terms you know when you when you understand that um, the eggs only need to be boiled for three minutes you know you make you make intentions and you think in terms of no not 20 minutes I'm not going to boil this egg 20 minutes be careful three minutes or something like that so that wisdom uh, is the is the is the fuel or the impetus for right thinking so when you when when you have uh, when you have some conflict and you don't understand the conflict some you know something just isn't working right then you have to investigate why why can't I just be at peace with this person or you know why do I get so upset or whatever then you have to set, get get a sense of well, what's happening now so let's say if I get um, uh, intimidated by someone um, in the office or something like that, and I always just kind of act in a sort of uh, frightened way with that person, then I need to, when I'm, when I'm at home, I need to say, well, why can't I just be cool? You know, why, why, why you know, what's the problem? And that very, that very uh, intention, then when you go meet this person, you'll say, oh, I feel intimidated by him, or I want him to like me, or I want her not to fire me, or whatever it is. And you see, oh, the fear is arising because of a certain desire. And that, that you're investigating until you just see it happening with this person, there, you know, with this person as a perception or as a vision, there is this fear that arises. And then when you've got it there, then you can watch the fear. You say, I'm going to watch this fear in in the situation where I'm talking with this person. So I'm working at two levels. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm fulfilling my worldly responsibilities by talking and so on, but I'm watching inside, oh, I'm really afraid of this person, or, or whatever it might be. And, that, and to get to that, you'd have to make some intentions to investigate your conflict. If you, if you, and that's where samatha is very good, where you have some calm, you meditate, and then you go into this situation where this person just... just you know, you get really upset or something. Why? Why is that? So that would lead to insight. Something you, you'd understand, not an abstract Buddhist insight, but an insight around your conditioning vis-a-vis this person. So then as, as, you, as you understood that, then you'd start to make intentions uh, to, to be aware of the fear that arises, maybe, for example. So then you'd start to use language like, where is it, uh, where is uh, uh what does my stomach feel like? Or what does my heart feel like? Right? But now that thought is not just from me, it's from your own insight, because you've investigated. So what does my heart feel like when I'm near this person? What does my stomach... Or even, even anticipation, you know, you're going to have an interview with this person. And, you know, a day, a day before, or as you leave home, you start to feel that. Oh, well, there it is. Okay, what does it feel like in my stomach? So you might just use one word, heart or stomach. And that would be the, the word which would remind you what to do. So you can go there. And then you, you're there, and your mind wants to spin this out now. What am I going to say? What am I? No, 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 no. What's it like? What's it like? And then you'd be with the person, and you'd have more mindfulness. You know, the, the karmic condition of fear would still come up, but now you'd be much more mindful. And that person then would be a way of actually you gaining a way of not being 
uh, overwhelmed by that condition, and that condition would lessen. That condition would lessen. So the language you'd use would be... Same with meditation. In the beginning, you don't know what to do, do you? Your, your legs hurt, your back hurts, you know, two minutes is a long time. It's like, this is just horrible stuff, right? So you just, just say to yourself, just sit there. Okay. So you kind of survive ten minutes. That's a good thought. That's a kind of determination, right? But then after a while, you, you, you see that you're too willful, or whatever it is. And then that's the investigation. There's something wrong with my practice. What's going on? And you, what's, why, why don't I just be at peace? What's wrong? And then you know, oh, I'm too willful. Right? And, then, and then you put the language in non-desire, non-becoming. Well, let's say if you have a, a really uh, powerful experience, you know, a Mr. Goenka retreat, you know, and you get some really powerful experience, then, you know, next time you go on a retreat, you're going to want that. Desire is going to be there. We've all been there, right? And you'll sit there trying to get that retreat in, and it'll be a horrible retreat. So it's actually horrible because why? You're trying to manufacture something that you had, and then you, and then and then through that you say, "What am I suffering? What's the problem? Oh, I want something that I don't have." And you, oh, it's the wanting. Oh, that's the problem. And then then you put the language in. Let go. It's good enough. So the language comes from inside, right? But sometimes, like as Westerners, we just want to find out the, the anal- analysis is, is overdone. You know, we tend to, as, as, as kind of intellectuals, we tend to overanalyze because you know, that's, you know, we've got good brains and that's our, our, our daily bread is from that. So, so you've got to be careful with that one because you, know, you can just, why am I so angry? Just anger. So ultimately, it's about letting go. If you, if you understand letting go, you don't have to figure it out. So if I'm getting annoyed at someone, but I just know it's annoyance, it's just a habit of mine, it comes up. I understand what letting go is, I mean, being patient, not adding to the thoughts. I just put in let go. Then I don't have to analyze. So sometimes we're just trying to, we're trying to get rid of stuff by analyzing it. But all, you want to get to the point where you just know the khandas as the khandas. Thought is thought, mood is mood, body is body, perception is perception, memory is memory, just stuff coming and going. And it doesn't matter how beautiful or ugly it might be. It, that doesn't matter. How, how beatific or how whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. It's just stuff. <laughs> it's just stuff, that's all it is. Because your, your refuge is in the space of awareness rather than the objects of awareness. Once you understand that, then you can take anything. You take old karma comes up, you know, and that's all right. Because you're not dependent on the objects. And letting go is not suppressing. No, no. Letting go is knowing change. But you sometimes you have to let go often. Oh, sometimes like a million times a minute. It just, you know, it's coming in. Let go, let go, let go. So yeah, sometimes like a very strong, uh, uh, you know, like let's say... Let's say you've, you've just worked furiously translating something for, let's say, four days, right? And you've done, you burn the midnight oil, drank coffee all night, and you got the deadline done, right? And the person says, rubbish to you, right? I mean, what? Because you've invested so much in that translation, then, you, you know, then you're going to be really careful. First of all, right speech. 
And then you, then you have to go home and process it because it's hit something very dear to you, all this work that you put in. And then, and then the letting go is like just constant. It comes up, that idiot, how could he do that to my work? Back to the breath. And, then, and, then, and, and that, that sense of trust that it's okay, the, the, the volume of stuff coming up, it's not, it's not wrong, it's not a problem, it's just uh, a difficult piece of practice. You have to be very patient. So letting go is very important to understand what we mean by that, letting go. Um, the, all the language of Buddhism comes back to the same point. It's about letting go, abandonment, craving, uh, this is the way it is now. It's all, it's all comes down to one point. After, after, and once you figure that out, there's nothing to study anymore. Really. <laughs> if we're, what, what's the study? Yeah, letting go, if you can, if you can understand what that is, that's the real key. Not becoming. It's not about tomorrow. And then, once you understand what letting go is, then you, then you see this in your, in your, in consciousness, which is always trying to get something, trying to figure something out, or resisting something. And that's what tanha is about. And, and, you, and, and it becomes more primal than just the particular scenario that you're involved in. It's just this primal energy of, of rebirth. You know, that's what it's about. Bhava. Rebirth. And, and then you see it as a pressure rather than as a whole narrative. Just as pressure. And you see, well, no, it's about relaxing. But you have to stay conscious. You have to stay conscious. Because quite often when we start to relax, we just very easily go off into thinking. And the mind just starts going off into thinking. So the sound of silence, the noticing of the end of thought is actually a very bright, it's a very, very bright place to relax into. I sometimes would go to Ajahn Svedo and I'd be in charge of work at Chithurst and he'd just give me the answer, don't think about it. <laughs> don't make it a problem. <sighs> okay. <laughs> what else could he say? So the thinking mind, if, if you don't see thought as an object, then you're just totally um, taken by the thinking mind. And it's not like bad thinking, it's just... Um, um, like when I, when I became a monk, and I told, eventually I went back to Toronto, my dad was very much against me being a monk. He came around, but in the beginning it was hard. But when I did go back, I hadn't been back for seven years. And I told him, what we're, you know, we're trying to see a space between thoughts, or the end of thought, or emptiness. He said, it's impossible. He just said, that's not possible. <laughs> and he was very much um, committed to thought. The more, he said, the more, you, the more you read, the more you'll know. So, and he was like very encyclopedic. He was always cutting stuff out of articles and he would have gone crazy with the internet. He's always filing things away and having all kinds of information. So he was a collector of knowledge and he was quite, you know, he's quite kind of renaissance thinker, thinking in many, many categories. But the idea of no thought, the space between thoughts, the emptiness uh, was like such a foreign territory, just can't be possible. 
decisions happen, like thought which is uh, fruitful and deliberate comes quite rationally. So it's not absolutely no thought, but it's the space between thoughts when thought is not necessary. So we need to think, and we need to plan, we need to make shopping lists, we need to make drawings of little boxes and things like that, but that probably only takes 10% of our time. 90% of our mental space is just habit. And it's that 90% which uh, we, you know, if you learn how to abide in, 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 in silence, that, that 90% which is just kind of background noise begins to be less influential, begins to fall away. And that's where the sense of self is built on, on thinking. So it's not, you know, it's, Buddhism is about right thought, rather than no thought, but the space of no thought is something we don't tend to notice. So it's not like an absolute saying you shouldn't think, that would not be right. But when is thinking appropriate and why is there all this other... Like worry, say. Worry is classic where um, you worry something through and, and how often does the future actually... You know, it works... At, so like, say like worry is based on desire. So the future is unknown. And I want, I want, I want a secure future, so my mind starts to proliferate, and I don't see that that thinking is driven by desire, desire to know. But even though I think something through, five minutes later, another variant comes up. Yes, but maybe, and then spins again because it's the desire to know. So once you begin to see this, this desire to know the future, or the desire to get rid of the past, and how that. How, how restless desire is, you begin to see how much, like, how to let go of worry. And that's going to be very hard, can't it? Because mind can be quite habituated to that. Or let go of resentment. Uh, or let go of, of fantasizing. So, so through the letting go, a lot of that verbiage that runs through consciousness begins to cease, because you're no longer feeding it. And then there's a natural sense of, oh, thought's okay, but no thought is also nice. Thoughts okay when it's appropriate, but it's just abiding in emptiness and silence. And that's that's a long training. You know, it's a very, very long training. And and it's not through getting rid of thought, it's through no longer fueling thought. No longer fueling. The word for attachment, upadana, is synonymous with fuel. And you can you can see how, let's say in this example, you you give your work to the person, you work, you know, four days and the person rubbishes you, right? That's going to hit you, you know? And, and that, will, that will trigger off, let's say, uh, aversion, maybe. Aversion comes, and then, rather than just knowing aversion is aversion, thinking starts to be driven by the aversion, right? That's attachment. But then the thinking creates more aversion. So it's also fuel. So the thinking is attachment to the aversion, but it's also fuel for more aversion. And then you spin it out, spin it out, and then it becomes a habit of mind. It works that way. Fear. So I, I get a, uh, I worry about something in the future, and it's something I can't really do much about, but my mind just likes to go to fear, to worry. So then the initial arising of the fear, of the unknown, comes, but I don't see it as an object of mind. I don't see it as a kanda. I, I, uh, it is a grasping through thought, me, what am I going to do? And then I run with that, and that's the fuel. It's the same thing. 
So attachment and fuel are, are really synonymous. So to think deliberately, yeah, there is a problem. We've we, we, we got to be careful. Like, there's a lot of thinking going into Lampan Liam's. You know, there's, there's a lot of thinking that's necessary. But how much, how much worry gets in there and so on. So to, to, notice the, to notice the mood of the mind which is driving thoughts. That's the third foundation of mindfulness. The mood of the mind which is driving the thoughts. Meditation, you get bored, you know, meditation is very neutral. So if you get a really neat idea while you're watching the breath, that neat idea is much more attractive than the breath. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's sweet. What do they call it? Mind candy? <laughs> and, and you start to chew on the mind candy, don't you? Rather than watch the breath. Because its initial attraction is, is, is pleasant. Oh yeah, but if we do this, but if then you run with it, you, you know, your mind is preoccupied with thought. Same with fear, you run with that. Comes the fear. How come that even when you're very tired, like when I was, sometimes I get tired mentally, and instead of uh, just winding my, down, yeah, my mind still needs more and more. Like I would try to just lie down and watch my breath, and it will keep on like being Yeah, that's an interesting one, isn't it? That's why people veg out in front of television. Yeah, but now I don't do that anymore. So. <laughs> I've asked people about that. Why do you? What is it about vegging out that works? It seems to work. I, uh, I think it's because we have put so much mental energy in into our life, and your exhaustion comes from working mentally. I think if you were if you were doing the fields, you know. You're, you're planting cabbages or something, you'd come home, you'd fall asleep real sweet, right? But because your, your work is very mental, you put in... Uh, what, what happened, if you think about it, what, when you put any intentions in mentally, those intentions then have an echo. Like, let's say, if, I, if, if this morning I'm thinking about... We have a Thai monk coming, coming uh, July 7th. I've written to him, does he have a ticket to get to Ottawa? who's going to meet him in Toronto. So I put some mental effort, energy, into that, which is not proliferation. But then I'm going to get echoes of that in my meditation. I did. You know, thoughts would come up about the monk who's going to come. So that's just natural. That's the way it works. So, but if you've really been intensely focusing on translating work, you've, you know, you've tried to, you know, how, how do you say heart in French or English or whatever, right? And you've really worked through, and what's the correct? You put a lot of mental energy into that, and that creates the, the, the karma, the karmic result of that is a lot of mental. And you basically you have to give the mind time to rest by not doing that. But not sleeping either. That's, that's where I think you've got to do lying meditation. <laughs> because... The, yeah, the mind, the mind is quite awake because it has all this kind of restless energy which has been... So if you keep doing that and never give your mind a break, you know, you, you really get mentally very exhausted. So actually learning to stop and not do mental work, to not read. That's why I think you like gardening. You know, when you're out here gardening, you actually loved it, right? 
uh, or, or sport, or walking uh, in Newfoundland, um, carrying a backpack. These things are, are very physical, and, or, or art, or things like that. Somehow to balance the mental work that, that we've done. I find that really helpful, just like working out or going for a walk. And but I don't I don't do I don't do mental work like that, so I don't I don't think I could. <laughs> I think I'd be on the pale. And then you also it's like like attracting light, like. So because your mind has become engaged in thinking, then you you're it's like it's very sticky. Ideas keep coming up and you want to go to them. So if there's an unsolved problem and you're translating work, right? Because you've intended to solve that problem, then your mind will keep trying to solve that problem. Like the, the architect that helped us in New Zealand who, who designed our meditation hall, really a brilliant guy. He's, he's a meditator. He, he teaches meditation. He always kept a pad by his meditation cushion because in the day he's... He's designing huge projects, right? And he's put a lot of intention into design, design problems. And those solutions are coming up all the time. So what he did is he, he had a sheet of paper, and if a solution came up, he jotted it down and went back to meditation. He didn't resist it. But also, he didn't pursue it. He just jotted it down and forget about it. And so he found a way of dealing with the naturalness of, of, of problem solving.